Our first reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 5 to 12. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set Peter and John and the healed cripple in the midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The word of the Lord. Our second reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare? to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and, I will, t and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you who do know him and have seen you from now on you do know him and have seen him. The word of the Lord. We're continuing on in the series Questioning Christianity that we started at the beginning of the summer, but we're moving into a second book called The Reason for God. The first half of this summer we were looking at um, Unchristian, a book by David Kinnaman, looking at the critiques of Christians. This next seven weeks, we're going to be looking at the reason for God, which is the seven most common questions that people who doubt Christianity are skeptics of the faith, their common questions, such as, how can a good God send people to hell? How can God allow suffering? Do science and Christianity contradict? Can you really believe the Bible? Today we look at one of the most controversial topics that are out there, and that is the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Can he be the only way? Well, as our first reader read for us, Peter tells us in Acts 4.12, in a sermon that he's giving, he says, there is salvation in no one else. He's talking about Jesus. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is one name under heaven by which we must be saved, is what Peter says. Now, this is incredibly controversial today, but it was back then as well. Think about the context in which Peter is saying this. Peter has just preached in Pentecost before the entire crowds that are gathered there to worship God in a Jewish context. A couple days later, he and John are arrested and now they're being brought before a tribunal. The tribunal includes priests, rabbis, scribes, 
teachers, religious leaders, these are the most devout Jewish men in the entire nation. It's bringing the bishops and the imams and the monks together. And Peter tells them, these very devout believers in Yahweh, the God of the Jews, you must know Jesus. There is salvation in no other name. Christianity believes that to be true. That salvation is through faith in Christ and Christ alone. Now look, I believe this, but I actually find this really hard. I often hide that I believe this because it's embarrassing because I know most others disagree with that. I know most people that I come across are gonna think that's crazy. So I try to diminish that. I'll talk about Jesus, but I won't talk about, uh, and you're wrong. I don't wanna do that. I don't wanna come across that way. And so I often hide the fact that I believe Jesus is the only way, but I do. And that's because at its root, the exclusivity of Jesus is the most difficult aspect of Christianity for modern Americans. It just is. Modern Americans, anybody who's lived over the past 30 years, all of us are on some level spiritual relativists. Relativism at its root says there cannot be just one truth and everyone has to be free to choose their own path. That's what relativism is. We all actually buy into that on some level. In his book, Habits of the Heart, that was actually written 30 years ago, 1985, Robert Bella famously quotes Sheila Larson. Sheila Larson said this about her faith, describing her faith to Robert Bella. I believe in God. I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church, but my faith has carried me a long way. I guess it's Sheilaism, just my own little voice. Now that actually seems pretty funny, but mostly because she decides to call her personal religion Sheilaism. But the reality is, if Robert Bella sat down with any of us and interviewed us in the same way that he did Sheila Larson, it's quite possible that our quote could be in here as well. Our version of faith is not that different at times. We might be self-aware enough not to call it Johnnyism. But for all intents and purposes, it might not be very different. I believe in God. I mean, I'm not a fanatic. I don't remember the last time I read the Bible. My faith carries me a long way. I guess I follow my conscience and try to discern how to go. Okay. The reality is that description of Sheilism is not very different than any of us. In 2009, Barna, the Barna Group that does surveys and research, finished off all of their research of Americans and religion in 2009, and here were some of the conclusions. Only, in 2009, only 34% or one-third of Americans believe in absolute moral truth. Absolute moral truth is the foundation of Christianity. There is a God, and he is true. But only one-third of Americans believe that. And the majority, over 50% of people who say that they're Christians, call themselves Christians, believe the Bible and the sacred books of other religions basically teach the same principles or truths. Over half of people who call themselves Christians, over half, say that Jesus is not the only way to heaven. 
Barna himself summarized his, the findings when he said, Americans, Americans typically draw from a broad treasury of moral, spiritual, and ethical sources of thought to concoct a uniquely personal brand of faith. We all do this. Relativism says all ways are equally valid and everyone must be free to discover what works for them. And so the question for most modern Americans of Christians is how can you say there's only one true religion? How can you say Jesus is the only way? That's ridiculous, it's ignorant, it's arrogant. Everyone knows, everyone knows there can't be just one way. Well, let's look at that, and let's look at the claims of a relativistic culture by asking this question first, what is a religion? A religion, at its root, is not necessarily a belief in God, or the supernatural, because not every religion has that belief. Buddhism doesn't actually believe in God, but we would call it a religion. It doesn't necessarily mean having priests or an organized liturgy. Not every religion has that. At its root, religion is a set of assumptions and core beliefs that explain who we are, our purpose and meaning, and what's most important, what matters, our values. And in that sense, every human being has a religion. You might not call it a religion, it might not be recognized, you might not worship in a place with other people, but all of us live with deep commitments. Deep commitments about who we are, why we're here, and what's most important. In other words, all of us are religious. Relativism might be called a worldview, but it's a modern Western worldview that is functions like a religion. And here's some of the basic tenets of it. Relativism assumes that there is no such thing as absolute truth and everyone's free to choose. And here's what it identifies as the highest core things. Individual liberty or autonomy is the highest value. The highest value is individual liberty and freedom. I should be able to do whatever I want. That's just the basic root. And the goal, the end, salvation if you would, is personal happiness. I must be happy and I must be free to choose that. But those are deep commitments that are actually unprovable. You can't know that those things are actually the truth. That actually the highest value is freedom, personal liberty, or that the greatest goal is personal happiness. You can't know that. It's a faith assumption, just like believing in God just like believing in Jesus. It's a faith assumption that is itself exclusive on some levels. For somebody to say, you can't say there's only one religion, is to be exclusive already. At its root, it's assuming that God hasn't revealed himself. Because look, if the basic tenet behind relativism is you should be free to choose what you want to find God and to find him on your own, I've just said that any religion that believes God actually exists and has revealed himself doesn't, isn't real. Because if God does actually exist and has revealed himself, then we're not actually free to figure it out on our own. We're meant to understand the God, not define God on our own. 
Relativism assumes something like the purpose of life can't be something besides personal liberty and personal happiness. Christianity says the purpose of life is to know and glorify God. And you may not be happy. You may even constrain your liberties, your freedoms, your desires out of a desire to know God and glorify him because that's right. But if you follow along relativism, which says anyone can believe what they want, that is, you can believe what you want so long as it's not Christianity or Buddhism or Islam. Relativism actually excludes all the major religions. Tim Keller in The Reason for God, which is the book that we're looking at over the next seven weeks, puts it much more succinctly and clearly. So let me just read what he wrote. Relativism is really a doctrine itself. It holds a specific view of God which is touted as superior and more enlightened than the beliefs of most major religions. So relativists do the very thing they forbid in others. And even more succinctly, he puts it this way. It is no more narrow, it is no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that one way to think about all religions, namely that all are equal, is right. All of us, all of us have core beliefs. We all have assumptions and commitments that on some level are going to exclude the core beliefs of others. It's just true. Everyone is religious, and everyone's belief system on some level is going to exclude somebody. So what do we do? I would say that if you come here as a skeptic, you don't really believe in this Christian thing, and even some of the things I'm saying sound offensive, I would say do the hard work. Don't be lazy. Discern the merits and truths of different worldviews and religions that are out there. Go ahead and do it. We owe it to ourselves to do the work, to figure out who has truth. Do the explanations of human purpose and meaning satisfy from a particular religion? Do they have intellectual integrity? Look across what they teach and how it's lived out. Does it have intellectual integrity? Does a particular worldview, like relativism or Christianity, make sense of the world in which you live? And does it speak to the longings of your heart, the deepest core desires of who you are? One of the great things that I've experienced about Christianity as I've studied it is that Christianity actually asks to be examined. And it has historically been examined and challenged more than any other religion. It has been challenged at the academic level. More PhD theses have been written against Christianity than against any of the other religions combined. Somehow it stood the test. But it begs, go ahead, question, challenge. Jesus did the same thing. And you even see it in the way that Christianity plays out in that it allows the scriptures to be written in the languages of the people. Saying, if you speak Swahili, you should be able to read the Bible in your language. You don't have to change your culture. In fact, Christianity has always had expressions in different cultures. The church do, does look different in America than it, than it does in North Africa, than it does in India. The language that's spoken, the language that it's read in, 
basically says you in your cultural context can engage this, this Bible, this God, this Jesus. You can understand him. And it asks us to go and do the hard work of questioning, asking, seeking, thinking, praying. So, do the work. Read the Bible. Examine this Jesus and the gospel message, the basic core tenets of Christianity. Look at Jesus. Don't just say you know about him. Actually read about him and understand him. Although the hard thing is if you actually look at Jesus, you're going to be offended. He was a really, really nice guy, but he was also true. And that's hard for many of us. Jesus himself claims the most hard thing that we can deal with in that passage that was read in John 14, 6, when he tells his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Multiple commentators say that this is the central phrase of the entire Gospel of John. John is trying to write a narrative about Jesus to carry on for generations, and he basically summarizes everything he wants you to hear in this sentence. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. There is no way to get to the Father except through him. Jesus himself says this. Sweet, loving, flowing hair, sandals, Jesus. Children on his lap, Jesus. I'm the way and the truth and the life. He's claiming this. Life and truth, basically purpose and meaning are found in him. And he's claiming, I am the way. Apart from me, you cannot have access to God the Father, to eternity. You can't. That is incredibly hard. But consider who actually says it. It's Jesus who says this. And the great thing about Jesus is he offends everyone. He's more extreme than any of us. Jesus called people to the sort of holiness that even religious people stop short of. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say, don't even look at a woman lustfully. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, if you have hate in your heart and unforgiveness towards someone, you've already murdered them. You have heard it said. He draws a line of holiness and perfection that even the most religious people weren't willing to go. He's saying it's not just your outward actions, it's your inward heart. It's the desires of your heart and how they express themselves in your thoughts. In other words, Jesus is more conservative than the most conservative religious people. And yet, Jesus ate with outcasts and sinners. He forgave his enemies, the Romans who crucified him, those who betrayed him. Jesus is more liberal and inclusive than the most liberal, progressive person out there. He's more conservative and more liberal. And in the end, when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, you cannot come to the Father except through me, he also paves the way 
by sacrificing himself on the cross, dying for our sins to make the way of salvation. He is demanding and yet completely generous in giving. Only through me and I give you all of me. If you come in here with heavy views against the uniqueness of Jesus, you might go a step further and say, it's not just that I disagree and think there can't be one way, it's that by believing there's only one way, it's actually dangerous. Being exclusive in your religious faith creates fanaticism and exclusivity that is part of the biggest problem in the world. It leads to a feeling of superiority because you're right and they're wrong, to looking down on those who disagree with you, and of course it leads to being hateful, judgmental, to oppression, to violence, to wars. Religious exclusivity has led to more wars than almost any other thing out there is what is claimed. And you know what I would say is that's true. That is true. Religious exclusivity does lead to judgmentalness, hatefulness, oppressing people, war. Because exclusive beliefs tend, they tend, on the, on the whole, they tend to lead to a sense of superiority. Because I know the truth, you don't. Or I have followed the path that leads to salvation rightly better than you. And so I'm naturally going to look down on you more. I can look back on times in my life when I have done this. When I looked at people who I considered soft Christians, claimed they were Christians, but I knew they didn't really believe as much as I did. And I was angry at them, felt superior to them, self-righteous. And at its extreme, as you can see even in the world today, it leads to oppression and to violence. If you were the victim of my self-righteousness when I was growing up, I'm sorry. And for what the church, in the name of Christianity, has done wrongly, I am sorry. There have been many people who we have oppressed and hurt, claiming Christianity. But this should never be the case in Christianity. The gospel message, the message of Christianity, the message of the Bible, the message of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ should bring about not only an exclusive trust in Christ, but a completely transformed way of approaching the world around us that does not look like the exclusive religions that lead to judgmentalness, self-righteousness, violence, oppression, in any way. Think about some of the core tenets of the Christian faith. We claim them in the Nicene Creed. We sing about them every week. We talk about them week in and week out. Here's one of the core beliefs. God created. Creation. You know what's interesting about the word creation? According to Christianity, it says that all of us have been made in the image of God. That is a core tenet belief of Christianity. You and I were made in the image of God. Not because we're Christians, but because we're human. Christians who believe in Christianity should have the highest view of human dignity and value and worth anywhere on this planet. Every human being has been made in the image of God. 
which means we should expect all people, regardless of what they believe, regardless of what they believe, to reflect God on some level. Which means if the only thing that ever comes out of our mouths about people who don't believe or the culture around us is condemnation, then we're not living up to reflecting the image of God and seeing the image of God in them. There are things in every human being that we can look to and celebrate if they're made in the image of God. And it does not matter what their religious perspective is, what their race is, what their sexuality is. It doesn't matter whether they're moral or immoral according to your opinions or mine. It doesn't matter whether they are unborn or nearing the end. We should have greater value on all people, more than anyone else does, protecting and defending life at every level because of our view of creation. Our view of redemption should also transform the way we think about the world. We talk about this again and again here at CCV, being gospel-driven people. The gospel, the story of redemption of what God has done in Jesus Christ is this. Everyone is a sinner. All of us are sinners. There's not a greater or lesser sinner. There's not ministers and monastics are of a higher order than you. We are all sinners. The prisoner who's committed a crime and the pious who tries to follow all the religious rules are both sinners. The Bible says all of us are sinners. We are saved by grace. It is a gift of God. That means you and I didn't do anything. We didn't follow some path. We weren't smart enough. God saved us. We did do and can do nothing. And if that's true, then what grounds do we have for superiority? For self-righteousness. We of all people should be the most humble, the most forgiving, the most sacrificial, the most generous. And just as an aside, it would be things like this. We shouldn't ever use terminology like they or them. Do you know what I'm talking about? When you, as a, as a person, identify somebody who disagrees with you and you categorize them as they, well, you know, they have been lobbying on Capitol Hill about, you know, them, they're the problem with what's going on in our culture. Any they or them language betrays a self-righteousness and an arrogance that dismisses the gospel. People may disagree with you. They are not they or them. They're sinners, you're a sinner. You've been saved because you're great. You're awesome, you're smart, you figured it out, you followed the path. No, because of Jesus. We've all been saved because of Jesus. There's no grounds for arrogance in the story of redemption of Christianity. And the story of Christianity ends in restoration. The picture of heaven is of the restoration of creation when there will be no more sorrow or sickness or pain. The pictures in Isaiah of eternity, of the restoration of all things, are the broken being healed, of the hungry 
being fed and full, of the barren finding family, of outcasts having a home, of the walls of the torn down cities being rebuilt. If that's our view of the end, we shouldn't just be trying to escape this earth, we should be trying to work towards its restoration. We, of all people, if we believe this to be true, should have the greatest impact on our culture, on, our, on the creation itself, on the cities that we live in. We should be the ones who are making and building things to increase human flourishing because that's God's vision of heaven. And we, of all people, should be those who are working for the suffering and the needy and the oppressed working to undo injustice in this world, to care for those who can't care for themselves, to protect those who are being targeted. We should go out of our way, as the early church did, because of their vision of eternity and heaven. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, which is our core thing that we believe in, should humble us and move us to love more deeply than anyone else. And if this is not true, then our exclusive faith is something we're making up on our own. It's not Christianity. You know, there's two extremes that we can go to here that I'm going to push against. If we call ourselves Christians, if you call yourself a Christian, but you think Jesus is not the only way, you're actually diminishing the cross. You're diminishing what Jesus did in his death on the cross. You're denying Jesus' own claims. You're misrepresenting him in Christianity. And basically, it's not the Christian gospel that you're upholding. It's Sheilaism, or Robertism, or whatever your name is, ism. It's your ism. It's not Christianity, which is Christ's faith. Faith in Christ and him alone. It has to be him and him alone. And if you call yourself a Christian, but you do believe Jesus is the only way, he alone is Lord and Savior, then you should be the most honest and humble and sacrificial and forgiving and loving person your family and friends and neighbors and coworkers and fellow students know. Or you are misrepresenting Jesus. And it's not the Christian gospel you're living. Jesus makes it clear. With him, it's all or nothing. Either he is all, he is Lord and Savior, and you give everything to him, or it's not Christianity. But the opposite is also true. If you drop everything, if you surrender everything, everything for him, to him, he promises you can have it all. Let's pray. God, there have been so many ways in which we have offended your truth. We reject the claims of Jesus, are embarrassed by his claims, diminish the cross. Or we hold so tight to that that we look down on and oppress and marginalize those who don't agree. 
God, forgive us. And if you are real, and I believe you are, reveal yourself to those of us who struggle in doubt and skepticism. And lead us into that way that is to know the Father and eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.